0: You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com gps.
1: Learn more at microsoft.com
2: slash AI for all. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today on the show, the coronavirus and the economy. Is the world headed toward a Great Depression? And how do we come out of it? I will ask the Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman, Ian Bremmer and Zanny Minton Bedos. Also, coronavirus becomes the excuse for dictatorship. In the last few weeks, Hungary's government has used the pandemic to give its leader unchecked power. Is this the end of democracy in a European country? And India, we will take you inside perhaps the greatest gamble yet the unprecedented lockdown of some 1.3 billion people to stave off catastrophe? Will it work? But first, here's my take. Even as we're just beginning to confront the magnitude of the shock caused by this pandemic, we need to wrap our minds around a painful truth. We're in the early stages of what is going to become a series of cascading crises reverberating throughout the world. And we will not be able to get back to anything resembling normal life unless the major powers in the world can find some way to cooperate and manage these problems together. The first phase has been the healthcare crisis in the world's major economies. The next phase is the economic paralysis, the magnitude of which we are only just beginning to comprehend. In the last two weeks, two weeks, America lost 10 million jobs, exceeding the 8.8 million total jobs lost over 106 weeks during the 2008 to 2010 recession. But this is just the beginning. Next up will surely be the danger of countries defaulting. Italy entered the crisis with the highest level of public debt of the Eurozone countries and the third highest in the world. The country's debt will skyrocket now as it spends money to combat the economic fallout from COVID-19. Next come the explosions in the developing world. So far, the numbers of infected have been low in countries like India, Brazil, Nigeria, and Indonesia, probably because they're less linked by trade and travel than the advanced world. In addition, these countries have tested very few people, which is keeping their numbers artificially low. But unless we get lucky and it turns out that heat does temper the virus, these countries will all get hit and hard. And then there are the oil states. Even if the quarrel between Saudi Arabia and Russia gets resolved, at this point demand for oil has collapsed and will not soon recover. Consider what that means for countries like Libya, Nigeria, Iran, Iraq, and Venezuela, where oil revenues make up the vast majority of government revenue, the vast majority of the economy. Expect political turmoil, refugees, revolutions, crackdowns, maybe terrorism. All of this might happen on a scale we haven't seen for decades. The world has entered this pandemic with two challenges. It is a wash in debt, government and private. With a total global GDP of 90 trillion, public and private debt add up to 260 trillion. The world's two leading economies, the United States and China, have public and private debt to GDP ratios of 210% and 310%, respectively. Now, this would all be manageable if not for the second challenge. This crisis is occurring at a time when global cooperation has collapsed, and the traditional leader and organizer of such efforts, the United States of America, has abandoned that role entirely. Last month, the G7 meeting was not even able to issue a joint statement on the pandemic because the U.S. refused to sign anything that did not label the disease the Wuhan virus, a dispute that sounds like something that comes out of high school. The centerpiece of any global effort would have to be close cooperation between the United States and China. Instead, that relationship is in free fall, with each side deflecting blame on itself by blaming the other. The follow-up to the G7, the G20 meeting, was also a dud. Even the European Union has been late to recognize the seriousness of this crisis, the most serious crisis in its existence. A rash statement by the head of the European Central Bank, caused Italy's worst stock market crash in the country's history. Now, what would be achieved by greater global cooperation? Well, since so much of the containment strategy involves travel, it would be far more effective if travel bans and advisories were coordinated. During the 08-09 recession, central banks and governments worked with each other to help contain and dampen financial contagion. If countries like Iraq and Nigeria explode, the cost in refugees, disease, terrorism would all make us wish we had tried harder to manage their fall. If the richest countries pool funds and share information, that will speed up the arrival of treatments and vaccines. And when the time comes to reopen economies, coordinated action on trade and travel, for instance, would give us all the biggest bang for the buck. The problem we face is broad and global. But unfortunately, the responses are increasingly narrow and parochial. For more, go to cnn.com farid Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Look at Los Angeles at Rush Hour, freeways that are usually bumper to bumper, now eerily empty. Or well, take a look at this shot of the Champs-Elysees, It makes the usually vivacious Paris look like a ghost town. Seeing such stark pictures in these two cities, and there are many, many more across the globe, it is obvious that vast parts of the global economy are shut down simultaneously. The question many are asking is, will this unprecedented shutdown lead to another Great Depression? This one, really global. Joining me now are Paul Krugman, a Nobel laureate in economics and a columnist for The New York Times. Zannie Minton Beddoes is the editor-in-chief of The Economist. And Ian Bremmer is the founder of the Eurasia Group, a political risk consultancy. Um, Paul, let me start with you. I, I, I sometimes I feel as though we're even mislabeling this when we talk about a recession or even a depression. We've never seen anything like this. This is more like a great paralysis. Mark Zandi uh, uh, at, at Moody's, who has the best data on this, says that if you look at it right now, you have had essentially what would amount to a 75 percent decline in GDP uh, in the United States. How do we
3: comprehend something like this? Uh, the, way, the metaphor I've been using is that this is, uh, it's like a medically induced coma, uh, where doctors deliberately shut down a lot of the brain 's function in order to give a patient a chance to uh, a chance to recover from a severe blow and what 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 we 've seen so far is mostly not a recession in the normal sense. recessions happen when there isn 't enough spending there isn 't enough demand for goods what 's happened instead is that we have more or less deliberately shut down a large part of the economy because uh, we 're trying to avoid activities that can spread the disease. Uh, we've done that way too late, uh, but that's, uh, it's, it's what has to be done. And overwhelmingly, what we're seeing so far, you know, those 10 million jobs, I'm sure it'll be 15 million by the end of this week, uh, that we've lost in the U.S. are because of that deliberately induced coma. Um, the That's pretty bad in itself. And for millions of people, that's a total loss of income. Um, and then there's a, a uh, we worry a lot, I mean, people, uh, all of us are working on this now, uh, that there, there's then a second wave, which is because so many people are suddenly impoverished, they can't buy other stuff. And so you get a severe recession of a more conventional type overlaid on top of this uh, coma that the economy has already gone into. Um, We're definitely going to see unemployment numbers that are as high as, if not higher than anything we saw in the Great Depression. The only question really is how long it lasts.
2: Uh, Zanny Minton-Bettos, does this look different in Europe? Because again, we have this extraordinary reality that it's all happening at the same time, and it's happening in the richest countries of the world simultaneously.
4: No, I'm afraid it doesn't look different. And and I find uh, Paul's metaphor kind of grimly appropriate, a medically induced coma. And if I might just extend that metaphor a little bit, I think what is worrying is that we don't really have a clear exit strategy. And I think that there is still a view that we'll sort of beat this and then life will go back to normal. And that's just not going to happen. We are going to almost certainly have periods of undoing some of these restrictions and then having to put them on again as the virus comes back. And we're going to damage just as a medically induced coma can leave serious, serious damage um, if people are that sick. So we're going to leave serious damage for the economy. And right now, we're seeing these almost unimaginable figures. But in real time, so much is happening that we're going to be behind. The official statistics are going to be behind again and again. So we're going to have a cascade of figures. And just how bad they get will depend in part how long it goes on for, but also how quickly the very equally dramatic government stimulus plans can actually get to the people that need them, the workers that are being laid off, the the companies that need payroll support. And right now on both sides of the Atlantic, um, they're way behind on that because it's just very, very hard to get these enormous programs into gear very quickly. So I'm afraid I think this is, we, we are just, as you said in the introduction to your program, in the early stages of something that is going to be much, much worse economically than it is now.
2: Zani, let me ask you about uh, uh, Europe, because there have been sort of there does seem to be an interesting difference when Europe unemployment is not spiking in quite the same way and and they're approaching it somewhat differently. I look at a place like Denmark. Explain how that part of the European response looks different from the American response.
4: So there there are several ways in which the European response is different. But one is in particular is whether you basically subsidize firms to keep workers on the payroll which is broadly the European response. And something like close to a million European firms have across countries applied for payroll subsidies. And the generosity of those subsidies differs. So in Denmark, 75%, I believe, of an of a, of a average salary is, or salary is paid for by the government. In the UK here, it's even more generous. It's 80%. The US broadly has a different approach, which is that there's been a very big increase in unemployment insurance. And so there's been a huge increase in layoffs. There is some attempt also... Through, through loans that can then be forgiven to help uh, particularly small businesses keep people on their payroll. But I think you are seeing, if you will, the sort of classic difference: the, the you know the U.S. the tougher capitalism that adjusts faster, people get fired, and there's a but there's a you know much much bigger than usual federal support. In in Europe, it's much more trying to keep workers paid with the companies that they are currently at. And broadly, the the European response I think is one that is more likely to keep people getting their salaries, getting income in the short term. But it also has some interesting consequences. So, for example, in the United Kingdom, where we do have this um, very generous uh, support from the government for keeping people on payroll, actually, those companies, whether it's in the retail sector that are desperately trying to attract new workers and hire people to do all the surge in demand for home delivery, are finding it quite hard to get workers right now.
2: All right. Uh, Stay with me. When we come back, I'm going to ask our panel how exactly do we start the economy, and what do the political effects of all this look like when we come back? And we are back with Paul Krugman, Zanny Minton bedders and Ian Bremmer. I should note Paul Krugman has a new book out, arguing with zombies. Uh, Paul, let me get. Let's get back to this issue that Zanny pointed out, which is that. When the, you, we start the economy, it's not going to start up on, in full steam. Um, I want to ask a different part of that, which is President Trump clearly wants to restart the economy, he wants to get the United States back to work. Um, what is the danger um, if it starts up too early? After all, the, you, one does understand uh, his concern, which is, you know, there is a cost, a huge cost to the economy being paralyzed this way. Um is there a danger that you start up too soon, and and, and what
3: happens oh, then? There's a huge danger. I mean, the uh, uh, we we really need a period of extreme lockdown to make sure that this thing has, you know, that that we've uh, that we've really brought the pandemic to an end, and. Um, I keep on seeing people saying that economists want the economy to restart. Uh, uh, that's actually not true. The overwhelming consensus of serious economists is that um, that you want to wait uh, better to err on the side of staying shut down longer rather than to err by starting up too soon. We even have some evidence, the 1918-19 um, flu pandemic uh, there was actual. There was social distancing. There were many of the same policies that we're doing now. They vary quite a lot among cities. And the cities that, uh, that did more social distancing and stayed with it not only had much lower death rates, but they actually did better economically. So everything right now says, this is not the time to worry about GDP. Don't worry about dollars. Uh, uh, we need to provide disaster relief. We need to provide aid to people who are not getting incomes uh and that and that makes it tolerable and we can go on for you know we we need to go on as long as it takes this would be trying to get things started because you want you know everybody wants uh, a return to the life we had but trying to do that prematurely is a recipe not just for a lot more people dying but also a recipe for actually a much longer economic slump Uh,
2: Ian, what we are seeing in china Uh, I think we lost Ian. Let me ask you, Zani, what we're seeing in China is the return of the economy after a period of a very drastic uh, and dramatic lockdown. Is that a hopeful sign? Because if you look at the way China is is, uh, reopening its economy, it does seem to suggest that once you get this under control and the numbers of new cases are very small, you can start up again
4: it is although i would caution that it's quite early days in china and there are a you know there there was a, an increase in infections that came from people returning from abroad and so they they shut the country to um, foreigners in particular and i would point to singapore which has really handled this in an exemplary manner but singapore has actually on Friday increased lockdown or essentially brought in a lockdown which it hadn't really had before because it was seeing cases increasing and i don't think it's going to be binary i think at some point we we are going to have to weigh the costs of keeping the economy shut down with the um, in, impact on life saved and the, and the pandemic. And of course, right now, I completely agree with Paul. It's absolutely clear that the right thing to do is to lock down. But over time, the costs of the lockdown are going to increase. And for some countries, it's just not going to be possible to do this. They won't have the resources to carry on doing this. And then I think we're going to have to figure out ways to start bringing the economy back to life. And I think one of the big differences between now and, and, and 1918, and I read that very interesting study about the US then, is that we have technology in a way that we didn't then. And I think one of the kind of under on areas of this is how we can harness technology, not just technology to, to get as fast as possible to a vaccine, to a treatment, but technology to trace people, technology to see where people are. Let's use this huge infrastructure we've got in terms of, you know, everybody having a cell phone in their hand. There are big issues with this. But, you know, are we gonna be heading towards a surveillance state? Do we need to worry about invasions of privacy? But I think right now that stuff is outweighed by people's desire to know whether they've you know, how far the virus has spread, to know whether they have had it, to know whether they have been near people who've had it. And I think we'll see Businesses reorganize themselves so that you can have production line with social distancing. We'll see service sector firms reorganize themselves. Restaurants will have much bigger space between tables. And we'll, I hope, use technology in a much, much more dramatic way than we've used it now to know kind of who's had the virus, where there are hot spots and where there's much less of it.
2: Ian, let me ask you about a bigger picture about this. And I'm sorry we had a little technical difficulty getting you on, um, which is, China is now donating ventilators to New York. Um, talk about the, the, the competition for leadership that is coming out of this, with China appearing to be at least uh, more confident and the United States uh, essentially uninterested.
5: Well, of course, on a couple of levels. I mean, even though the Chinese are responsible for the original outbreak with all the travel and the cover-up, The fact is that their economy is going to be back to pretty much 100%, at least on the supply side, within the coming weeks, while the Americans and Europeans are still shut down. They've got the medical supply chain. They have the excess medical personnel. Um, They have the ability uh, to learn some lessons from when the Americans gave humanitarian aid after previous crisis, some lessons that the Americans appear to have forgotten. And you know, I certainly believe that the Americans are capable of implementing real lockdowns and listening to authority. We're clearly capable of putting a lot of money into our economy for relief and restart as we need it. But we have completely abdicated leadership internationally for the developing world that will most need it, for our allies like in Europe that we're not coordinating with. And the Chinese smell opportunity here. They recognize that the global order will look very different coming out of this crisis than it did going in. And we, we really need to be paying attention to what Beijing's doing right now.
2: Uh, Paul, let me ask you a quick question. We only have a few. We have about 45 seconds. One thing that worries me, all of us on this uh, panel, I noticed, have been to uh, graduate school in social science. The data is very bad um, that is coming out. Countries are testing differently. Um, Is there a danger that we are making predictions on the basis of very, uh, very incomplete data here?
3: Yeah, uh especially because everything moves so fast. I mean, uh, we knew that you know, exponential growth in in the disease, but also even on the economic thing. We're now at the point where you know monthly economic data are already so far out of date that they're useless. And so even the we we really are uh, uh weekly figures which are not the right numbers, but we we're doing what we can. So um just, look just 3 weeks ago uh People, I was in contact with people who were debating whether we needed any sort of major economic response. Do do we really have an economic emergency that justifies a large package? Unbelievable now, right? Now now we're probably 15 million jobs down while we were just getting this thing together. So um, uh, we are, yeah, it turns out that we have a, we're not prepared, not just for something of this magnitude, but we're not prepared for something of this speed. Uh, and uh, this is a big problem.
2: Thank you all. We will, we will come back to you because this isn't going away. And thanks, Ian, in particular. Next on GPS. Hungary's leader, Viktor Orban, has used the coronavirus crisis to grab all but absolute power. He was given the power this week to rule by presidential decree. I'll tell you all about it when we come back. Donald Trump's usual complaints about what he terms fake news, which is really news he doesn't like, haven't gone away during the coronavirus crisis. But one leader has taken it farther, much farther. A new law in Hungary calls for up to five years in jail for publishing so-called fake news related to the coronavirus. And that is just a minor part of a major measure that will give Prime Minister Viktor Orban ultimate power, the ability to rule by decree. His personal whims will have no checks, no balances. What will this mean for Hungary? Michael Ignatiev is the president of the Central European University, a George Soros-funded institution founded in Hungary that was expelled by Orban last year. And Valerie Hopkins is a Budapest-based Washington uh, correspondent for the Financial Times. Michael, let me ask you, how did we get here? Um, this is a European country, that is essentially slid from what looked like a functioning liberal democracy to something very different.
1: Uh, Fareed, this began 10 years ago uh, when he won power in 2010. He muzzled the press, he uh, cut back on the autonomy of the courts, then he came after our free institution, Central European University, and now this seems to me a culmination of um, a pattern that's developed over 10 years and it's developed frankly because the european union didn't stop him because uh successive uh american administrations didn't stop him and because china and russia and the authoritarian states were only too happy to welcome another authoritarian into their camp so it's a it's a story of him getting away with stuff but it's also a story of him being simply continuous with what he's been doing since 2010.
2: Fascinating. 2010, of course, he wins a big election because his, uh, his opponent, uh, the prime minister, said something. Uh, he, he made a gaffe on TV. Um, Valerie, let me ask you about this. Um, the judiciary in Hungary seemed independent. Uh, the press seemed to be a thriving free press. What did he do in both cases to neuter them?
6: Wow. Well, thank you very much for having me, first of all. And I think it's important to know that if if anybody uh, knows how dangerous an economic crisis is, it's Viktor Orban. So he, as as Michael said, he swept into power in 2010 after uh, an economic crash. And I think now this law is um, geared towards preventing uh, a similar loss of power. And over the course of the last decade, he's really um, focused on first um, rewriting the constitution, amending it several times, and then stacking institutions like the constitutional court and also regulatory bodies with people loyal to him. I mean, most Hungarians will tell you that actually the lower levels of the judiciary are still fine, and and many of them will still um, make good decisions, but it's the highest levels that that we have to be worried about. Regarding the press, um, there's been a a real uh, trend of powerful oligarchs tied to the government coming in, taking profitable, interesting, independent media outlets, buying a majority stake in them, and then eventually turning them into government propaganda mouthpieces. Um, That actually was announced that one of the most important media outlets um, that's still independent, because there are still a number of very brave and very wonderful local journalists working very hard to do their job here, was bought up by a, um, a businessman close to the government. He bought a controlling stake in the paper. So it's very concerning that that happened the day after this law passed. Um, And one other thing is that in November 2018, 500 media outlets who had systematically been um, targeted and sort of uh, had their editorial policies affected, shall we say, uh, donated themselves for free to a foundation that's now run and managed by Orban loyalists. Um, And they will publish identical news about uh, how great the government is every day.
2: Michael, describe what uh, what some Hungarians call uh, Viktor Orban's peacock dance. The, this shows you, I think, how uh, savvy he is and that, you know, when he's confronted, sometimes when he takes one step too far, he backs off.
1: Well, the optimistic view of this um, suspension of all uh, parliamentary rule and constitutional rule is that he He can trade this back if he gets external pressure. But I actually think uh, this is a peacock dance that uh, in which he's not dancing back. I think he's consolidating power uh, and is going to be indifferent to what uh, the European Union says, because I think the European Union, the French, the Germans um, are so deep in their own crises that they're not going to mind that uh, basically one European state has turned into a single party state in front of their eyes. And uh, I think President Trump has been um, positively friendly to Orban for two years. So Orban's peacock dance used to depend on counterpressure, uh, counterpressure from the French or from the Germans or from the Americans. He doesn't need to do the peacock dance. He, he just keeps running. And, and that, it seems to me, is very important here. Um, you can't see what's happening in Hungary apart from um, a basic abdication of uh, the defense of the basic principles of European democratic freedom uh, right across the European Union and and also the retreat of America from any role uh, in defending democracy overseas.
2: Um, Valerie, what is this what do Hungarians look at this and think? Because you know, as often happens in parliamentary systems, it seems to me that Orban has about thirty percent of the population solidly behind him maybe another 10% uh, you know somewhat supportive but it's not a vast majority and so what are you know what are all these hungarians who are un- uneasy with all this what are they saying what are they doing
6: well, Orbán, like many leaders uh, now in the corona crisis, has re- experienced a bump in his popularity. But it's very unclear how long it will last. You know, before coming out with an economic package, the government already started proposing laws that have nothing to do with coronavirus like uh, or combating the virus, like making it illegal to change one's gender identity or something. I think most ordinary Hungarians are incredibly worried about the very poor health system here and the very poor economic Um, measures that that may be taken. I mean, the the prime minister has announced that there won't be any special measures other than three months of unemployment for people. So I think they're very, very scared about what their economic future will entail um, and very, very worried about, you know, their own personal safety and security uh, when it comes to the health system. I think it's the measures are, are not quite so popular, but, you know, the opposition in Hungary has been quite fragmented now for so many years. And in addition to being able to rewrite the laws, the government has changed the, the electoral maps of the country, making it making it more and more difficult for, for the opposition to come back. However, in the local elections in October, 10 out of 23 of the major cities were won by the opposition. And um, it's possible that, that eventually uh, they may be able to, to make a comeback, but, but it will be ever harder with the new laws imposed, especially now a new proposal that was announced yesterday that will make all parties give half of their funding uh, to a special coronavirus fund uh, administered centrally by the government.
2: Um, Michael, let me ask you very quickly, we have 30 seconds, but the European Union provides 6% of Hungary's GDP some years. Couldn't it just say, stop this?
1: <laughs> Fareed, if only. I mean, uh, that's clearly the most important lever. Uh, but the European Union, I think, is so weak that they fear if they, they apply that lever, uh, Hungary will walk. Where Hungary would walk to is not clear. So I think it's a lever that should be applied. But they certainly have had many occasions in which they could have brought that hammer down. And haven't done so, Fareed. And this is just, I think, a sign of the extraordinary fragmenting impact of the coronavirus on the on European politics and on the capacity of European states to act together and act against what I think is a threat uh, to the democratic values of the whole continent. Michael Ignatiev,
2: very pleasure to have you on. Um, next on GPS. Hello. All these spring break- breakers make it clear how difficult it is to lock down America, which is a country of 330 million people. How about a country of 1.3 billion? We will take you inside history's largest ever lockdown when we come back. On March 24th, Namaste. Prime Minister Narendra Modi made a nationally televised Corona. address to tell Indian citizens now. that at midnight... Four hours from then, the nation would be on lockdown for at least three weeks. It is the biggest lockdown ever ordered in history. Almost all of India's 1.3 billion people are subject to it. Sounds like many Western nations. No, there is a big difference. And in order to help us understand all that, the Indian journalist Barkha Dutt joins me from Delhi. She's a Washington Post columnist. Barkha, the the extraordinary nature of this lockdown, with no, gi- giving people no time to prepare, uh, must have thrown India into it, which is already, you know, Galbraith's line a functioning anarchy. It must have made it pretty chaotic.
0: I mean, Fareed, chaotic would be an understatement. When the prime minister announced that the nation was effectively going to shut down uh, the first instinct of the country was to be a little fearful, but essentially applaud him and understand the inevitability of the decision as also the how extraordinarily difficult it was going to be. But I think what people did not anticipate is, uh, you know, spaces that had not been planned at all. And what we saw erupt in the first 72 hours after the lo- lockdown was hundreds of thousands of poor people literally fleeing the cities that they work in. These are India's migrant workers. They're the poorest of our poor. They're estimated to be 45 million. By migrant workers, we mean people who live elsewhere in villages but come to the cities to work. They're effectively daily wages. Because the prime minister's address did not make any sort of message about economic packages and economic rehabilitation when he announced the lockdown, there was mass panic, Fareed. I walked uh, with many of these men and women. There were poor men carrying five-year-old children on their shoulders, women carrying their life's belongings rolled into one sack on their heads, little children on the roads walking hundreds of miles. And it's been called the largest mass exodus, mass movement of people since partition. And, you know, it was staggering to see that this had not been factored in, that millions of our poor had not been factored in and just four hours was given for the country to shut down. So people are now worried. So many men and women I met while reporting this story said to me, the poverty that we're going through, the loss of jobs, the loss of wages, the absence of food, that's going to kill us before the coronavirus does.
2: The, the the theory behind this, uh, which I which I think most people understand, w- was that you needed to take very tough, uh, even brutal measures, because and, and try to suppress the the, vi- uh, the virus, which is still in low numbers in India, because if it did spiral, the Indian healthcare system is really one of the worst in the world, right?
0: Yeah. So. Like I said, I think we got the theory, we got the logic, and the country really did rally behind the prime minister when he first um, made the announcement. But I think there's a sense now that the execution and the planning has not been up up to the mark. And I don't mean to be an armchair analyst saying this. I've been you know out on the ground reporting this story, and we understand that this is 1.3 billion, the world's uh, you know sort of most largest democracy that we're talking about. We understand how difficult this is. But the fact is that the evidence on the ground tells you, Fareed, that this should have been A, done earlier. B, the government should have given itself time to plan for the most vulnerable Indian people. Just to give your viewers a sense, about 250 million Indians live below the poverty line. you know, And, and, and just imagine that in relation to the United States' entire population. 45 million, as I said, are transient workers who are daily wagers. And 92 million million Indian homes, households actually live in one room. So when you tell these households stay at home, what are you really saying to them? So the challenge before India right now is that the socio-economic crisis, the spectre of starvation, the very real fear of hunger, that does not become a bigger crisis than the coronavirus uh, infection. We understand the logic of the lockdown. We just wish citizens and reporters covering the story that the government had given itself much more time to plan it better, keeping our most vulnerable, our most impoverished citizens in mind.
2: Uh, finally, tell me how this has impacted Modi and his, his uh, kind of leadership style, because last night he called for a kind of national uh, p- period of, uh, of, of darkness and the lighting of lamps. Uh, what, is it, you know, what, what has he turned this into?
0: Well, I think Modi's great uh, skill is to turn every disruptive moment in politics uh, into a test of patriotism. Uh, That is how he handled demonetization, which in his first term was considered one of his biggest mistakes when he swiftly took uh, more than 80% of India's uh, cash out of circulation. Uh, The lockdown is not seen as a whimsical decision by him, but in many quarters, it is seen as an ill-planned decision, one he rushed through uh, without uh, giving the government enough time, as I've been saying, for planning it and and planning it properly. That said, Modi does have a kind of Uh, you know, Teflon uh, Teflon advantage almost. And he's managed to convert this moment also into a sort of test about whether you're standing with India or against India. And the other thing that's happened that does enable, uh, and it's a horrible thing to say at at this point, but it's true, it enables the BGP's uh, Hindutva politics, is that 30% of India's confirmed cases, according to officials, are linked to religious congregations of an Orthodox Sunni Muslim group called the Tablighi Jamaat, uh, more than 1,000 of confirmed I, I, cases in India have been linked I got and traced a, back to this. I, yeah, I, I sorry. Got, so I, this I, just enables their politics at
2: this point. I, I it's. We, we will get back to it. That's another very important part of it. Sorry, I have to let you go. Thank no you problem. so much. Thank you. Next on GPS, can our politicians come together like our scientists do? My book of the week is a terrific story of a courageous leader who took his country from depression and despair to hope and recovery. No, it's not a fictional story, but rather a great history of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's first 100 days. Jonathan Alter's The Defining Moment will give you a rich sense of what great leadership actually looks like. And now, a last look at some good news. Across the world, Scientists have been busy working together across borders, across oceans, across time zones to fight COVID-19, to build an antibody test or develop a vaccine. But the impact of the disease has felt far beyond hospitals and doctors' offices, and so technologists are stepping in to fill the gap. As the virus spreads, Italian, Austrian and German mobile operators aggregated cell phone data to track users' collective movements from hotspots. In the U.S., the world's fastest supercomputer, IBM Summit, was put to work screening 8,000 molecular compounds to identify the 77 most likely to block COVID-19 infections. This process, which would have taken months on a normal computer, allowed researchers to narrow the scope of their research within just a few days. Now the newly narrowed list of drugs can be studied by scientists around the world. And in the tech-savvy nation of Estonia, Two technology companies held a hackathon last month. More than 1,300 people in 20 countries worked together for 48 hours to develop digital solutions to the many problems created by the crisis. To cut through the swirl of information and misinformation, there's an artificial intelligence bot to answer questions about the virus's spread based on reliable sources like the World Health Organization and the Estonian Health Board. For sick people wondering if they should get a test or go to the hospital, there's an app to help track your symptoms, compare them to the prevalence of COVID-19 in your neighborhood, and help you assess your risk. This first hackathon was so successful, the Estonian companies are helping organize a global hackathon this coming week. If you have an idea, go to theglobalhack.com to register. Maybe all this global collaboration can inspire politicians to follow the examples being set by private citizens working together across national borders against a common foe. Thank you to all of you for being part of my program this week. I'll see you next week.